Welcome back to part two of the Build podcast with the mighty Nick Stringer. This time we walk the beat down memory lane with PC Ron Smollett. Plenty of the Bill Goldust in this part two, so pull up a chair in the collator's office and enjoy. You were no stranger to the Bill because you'd already guest starred in uh, in the second series when in the early. Yes, hour. I had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You got a great bit of dialogue with John Soulhouse there when he's raiding your house and you say. Here, you've got a bleeding cheek out near you. He says, no, sir, it's a search warrant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a great game. How were you cast in the bill? And, and were did did having played a part in it before help your cause? How did it how did it all happen? Well, it, it didn't hinder my cause mm. because they worked on the prince. I mean, you will see many actors coming back, repeating not the same performance, not the same character, but coming back into the bill over its many years because they had a kind of a policy of letting four years go by and then you could go back into it, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I was well past that by the time they, they came to cast uh, Ron. I think they were looking for, for certain qualities in Ron because the Met at that time had started putting these regular beat officers back on the uh, on the street, and it was a it was an initiative that got put nationwide to a large extent, and it was the one of the sort of main things I think that the writers picked up on was that it was mainly a lot of policemen who were maybe coming towards the end of their careers, you know, coming to the end of their thirty years, or maybe people who. I'd never sort of pushed for promotion. So there was a sort of a placidity as kind of a non-gung-ho kind of attitude. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. When I went out with uh, two regular beat officers, because that part of the Bill's kind of publicity is true. You know, everybody did go out and cover the job that they were supposed to be portraying. And I I was out with these two guys. One was... uh, Ex uh, Northern Ireland copper, and the other one was a a guy who was uh, a chalky white who was coming up for his retirement. And a few kind of nuggets of advice they gave me as we walked around was, we don't ever want to see you running because you, know, as an RBO, you never run. And if we don't see you at least with one cup of tea in your hand, you're not being a proper RBO <laughs> because they would just, I mean, they if they were good. There was no point in running after any youth who was committing an offence because he knew where he lived. Yeah. And you yeah. knew and you knew his mum. And you knew his dad was in Nick, but you knew his mum, you know what I mean? So mm. and and they were very much just kind of they they were there to maintain uh, a connection with the community, which I think was an invaluable I think it was a really good idea. I mean one example was when I was out with them, there was a trading estate and the trading estate after five o'clock, of course, would all shut down and the ladies of the night would take over. That would be their pitch there. They would stand around there. Right. Hmm. And uh, one or two of them started to move over into residential streets to kind of get their clients. Anyway, vice 
got onto the RBOs and said, look, can you sort this out? Can you give the girls a warning? So I was with them at the time. We went up and it was about half past five and the girls had sort of gathered ready to do their evening trade. And uh, Chalky went over and said, listen, girls, I've had a word just in my ear that Vice are thinking of coming down and busting anybody who goes off this patch and goes into the residential streets. Just a word of warning, all right? I'm not doing anything. I'm just letting you know what I've heard. So anyway, we went away. We walked around the streets for a bit. We came back about, I suppose, 45 minutes later, and there were three girls in a residential street. Okay. And Chalky had told them, I recognised them, Chalky had been in the, uh, they'd been in the group that Chalky had spoken to. Anyway, so he just got on the, his radio and he said, uh, I need a van down here in the street. So the van came down. These three girls were put in the back of it. Of course, they'd go back to the station. They're charged. They're kept in overnight. They get up in front of the beak in the morning. They pay their fine and they're back out on the street. Later than that, that day, the next day, Chalky and, and this other guy, Phil, up we go to them and he goes, see, what did I tell you? Now, if you'd listened to me, and stayed on your patch, you'd have been as right as rain. No problem. And they're all going, oh, yes, Chalky, thank you, Chalky. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was, that was the way they operated. And that was the way I kind of thought that Ron went, really. That was his sort of forte, was just sort of keeping everybody sweet and, you know, not being seen sort of doing car chases. or. I mean, I think he ran after somebody once, and I don't think it ended well. Uh, you know. Oh, yeah, no, you, you get a nice couple of physical moments. There's an episode that sums all that up. It's called Hiding to Nothing, where you're paired up with Tom Butcher. Tom lets these kids wind him up, whereas Ron doesn't, you know, and he and yeah. has exactly that, where he's like, look, I know, I know your mum. Look, let's not... And yeah. Tom lets them wind him up, and, he, of course, he gets locked in a building by them and has paint chucked all over him as a sort of yeah. result of, <laughs> of him being wound up by them. So... Was it when you first started and you were playing the Collator, were they thinking then that you would be out on the beat or initially was it a case of you being patient and see what happened? Because you're, you're quite station bound for a, 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 a reasonable amount of time. Uh, over yeah. One, yeah, 100 episodes, um, you know, you, you're, you're the Collator, which you've got some marvellous scenes and... Uh, You've got a lovely likability where Ron is obviously an, a know-all, but you still make him likable, and that's quite a balance, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it was, yes, yeah. I didn't want him to sort of be like the, the station nerd, yeah. you know. Um, but no, I mean, I think, I mean, to be honest, Ron, I mean, I I don't know how far in advance they, the the scriptwriters knew about the the meta initiative with RBOs, I mean, I should imagine that sort of thing is put in advance probably about a year because yeah. it would take some organising, wouldn't it? So, I mean, I think perhaps they had their eyes on Ron uh, to do that, yeah. Yeah. When you joined, I mean, it was, uh, I'm guessing, the longest television contract you'd accepted at that point oh, yeah. in your career. Oh, yeah, absolutely. How did it change your life because it's not just obviously the financial side but there's a fame side I suppose that comes along with being in a very established series yeah I, mean, I think actually it was what was strange was I think a lot of people 
remembered me from Only Fools and Horses. And they would recognize me from the bill as well. But it sort of, I suppose what it meant was that they recognized me as an actor rather than as Ron Smollett, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Because for some people in long running, you know, if they're in a, a long running episode, they become that character in the eyes of the public. I yeah. mean, Graham Cole's character, for example, Graham to the public was Stamp. Whereas I think, I think because of Only Fools being so popular and being so repeated and all my previous TV work, I think people knew me as an actor rather than as Ron. If you right. see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So there was not, so there was not so much. Oh, you're that guy off the bill. There was more kind of, oh, you're an actor, aren't you? You know. Uh, have you had any strange encounters over the years with people recognising you or of the public? Oh yes, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I had one when I was uh, Frank Harvey in Coronation Street, right? Yeah. So I'm behind the bar of the Rovers Return. I was living in Balham at the time. And a mate of mine said, come on down to this party, having a party Saturday night. So I get back from Manchester on the Friday, relax on Saturday and think, oh, yeah, right, I'll go to the party. So I went off to the party and there was this bloke there who said, I know you. And I went, oh, yeah, OK, fair enough. <laughs> I'll hold my hands up. And, he, and, he, and I said, yeah, yeah, well, you probably do. Uh, I'm an actor. And he said, no, 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 no. No, you run a pub, don't you, <laughs> down, down in Streatham? I went, no, I don't. He said, you do? You run a pub. Don't muck me about now because I've been going to that pub for donkey's years. You run a pub in Streatham. Anyway, so I got my mate over. And I said, can you tell your friend here that I am Frank Harvey of Coronation Street and that's where you recognise him? Anyway, he wouldn't have it. He would not have it. My friend told him. Other people would tell him. He went, he went no, you're all winding me up. You're all like, he runs the dog and duck down in Shreddon. It was the weirdest evening I've ever had. Oh, I love it. Fantastic. And so let's talk through a day in the life of you making the bill at Merton Studios. What was your routine? Who were your Who were your main pals? What were the crew like? Take us back to 1990. Oh right. Well, at the time I was living in Crouch End in North London, which is not blessed with a tube station. So, I if I had a first call, say in at seven, it meant getting up at say quarters of six, half five, quarters of six, getting out, catching the first bus down to Archway. And then on the northern line, all the way down, all the way down to Morden or South Wimbledon, whichever I chose. And then just a, a quick walk into the studios. Get there usually about seven o'clock. Mate, of course, I'd, I'd worked with Kev Lloyd many times. Kev had been at the Everyman with me and we were good friends. So I knew Kev. Uh, I knew Eric. I'd done a, I'd done a TV play with Eric, so I knew him. I think I knew Trudy. I can't remember whether I did or not. But anyway, you know, they were all they were all fine. They were lovely. I mean, it was they knew because I was because I knew Kev that kind, of, and Kev was so popular with everybody that gave me a kind of an in, if you know what I mean. Mm. I was accepted more re uh, re readily. Ben as well. I knew Ben, so uh, me and, and Kev and Ben. Had all worked together, so uh, that was good. 
the crew were just amazingly hardworking. I mean, they would, I mean, we'd have three units going all at the same time, all colour coordinated, and like it, it was a military operation. It was, it was extraordinary the the, the organisation that went on there. Uh, and you would just be ferried from one set to another, or if you had to go out on location and then come back, and blah de blah de blah. I mean, but the crew, they knew exactly where they were. And I think without them being so professional, there could have been a lot more kind of mistakes and, uh, you know, bits of equipment turning up that shouldn't have turned up uh, and all that sort of thing. You know, they were really spot on. And they were very friendly too. Very nice. I've got a few uh, of my favourite Ron episodes, as, a, as I'm, I'm sure you have. I mean, there's a lovely episode called Getting Involved and Ron's walking into the station and you see a couple in a car outside and you recognise them. That's right, yeah. yeah. You've got a lovely, very delicate way and you use this a lot. You're a clever chap where you're asking, Ron is asking a colleague, in this case, Tony Stamp, Graham Cole. So uh, what was all that about, Tony? And, and you do it in a way where the audience know that you know something, but you're not letting on that you know something. <laughs> and that's, that's a very diff- difficult thing to do, I think. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a subtle thing to get right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Oliver. That's a pleasure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I love watching you as Ron. And when, as soon as they start getting you out and about, it's like, oh, great, you know, because they've, they've seen the potential and then they just let you go off and have some great moments. I mean, in, in that episode, <laughs> you do get to rugby tackle someone because you, you've had a scene, a lovely scene with Leslie Nickel, later of Downton Abbey fame. Yeah. And uh, you you explain that this uh, this driver who had who you think had killed her husband is, is back on the manor. And we get a bit of backstory about Ron for the first time about his days in traffic. Yeah, oh god, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I always had the feeling that he uh, that he'd overstepped the mark in traffic, so man. Yeah. That he'd got moved on, I don't know. I mean, it was never explicit, but I just got that feeling that he perhaps he probably booked the wrong person too many times and were on the line. Mm. It's quite I mean, later on they do give you a fair amount of backstory i.e a character talking about their past, which didn't happen a lot at that time. They kept the private lives of the characters pretty much locked away. But it's nice yes, that they, they did, yeah. yeah, it's nice that they gave you that opportunity. But it's also because I suppose people forget. I mean, you you were only forty, you know, when you were playing the part. But they they taught. It, I suppose it's that classic thing like you had right at the start of your career, where they're casting you as someone perhaps who seems older. older. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's quite a rich tapestry, you know. One one day we'll get a Smollett prequel, you know. We'll we'll, we'll get <laughs> Sm- Smollett of Doc Green, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in that, yeah, you you do take down a suspect, Mark Wingate and Andrew McIntosh are on an estate, and their suspect runs away from them, and uh, you make chase and you catch him, you damage your wrist, which prompts a great Mark Wingate line on his radio saying, "Any transport to take an injured collator to casualty." <laughs> you get a grilling from the late great Colin Tarrant as well. Um, here. Yeah, we see. I knew Colin as well. That was another one, another guy I knew when when I first joined. Yeah, who's another another friend of mine who's sadly yeah. gone. Yeah, yeah. You've got a great moment in that scene. He's giving you a grilling, but then he he realizes, you know, that 
it's the first time we hear about your traffic time and and he says aren't you enjoying being collator and you say filing cabinets and crime sheets after 20 years of broken bodies and and you put in this wonderful pause and just say it's a piece of cake sir you know it's lovely little moments like that um (laughs) for the first time in this episode you get the drums and you get top billing so that must have been a nice moment yes it was yeah i mean it was it was not something you you could engineer for yourself. I don't think it it was the sort of you couldn't sort of engineer. It. That was down that was down to uh, the producers to do that. But it was nice. It was a good moment. Yeah. One of my favourites. I love this, and it harks back to you talking about walking the beat. It's called "The Taste" by Julian Jones, who seems to like writing for you because he wrote quite. a Yes, yeah, he of did. You. Yeah, yeah. I love your body language when you're you're on the beat because you. You, you're you're walking tall, very proud. I mean, you just look. I mean, you've played over fifteen police officers on on screen. You know, so it, yes, there's there's something about the way you 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 are legitimate when you're on screen. You know, not everyone is. So um, is is obviously something. I mean, do you enjoy embodying that kind of character? Yes, I mean because I mean well. There are there are many. I mean, there are many sort of aspects to it, aren't there? I mean, I thought I thought Ron was a genuine copper. That's what I tried to play him as. Was that he was genuinely proud to be a police officer. I mean, there are other police officers I've, I've played who are kind of puffed up little kind of you know Hitlers and and who want to sort of um, rule the roost or. Or I played um, bent coppers as well, you know, kind of uh, just on the take or on the make. But I always felt Ron was a was proud to be a copper. Yeah, he, yeah. he really liked the job. In that episode, you you see a young driver of a flash car, and you just don't think they add up, you know. And he's trying to uh, start. That was the Saab, wasn't it? The That's Saab, right. the yeah. Saab, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you you have a great joke. You uh, said, "Do you know what the clutch said to the gearbox, sir?" Another grind like that, we'll have to get engaged. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so yeah, you, you to me, you just the, the real deal in that. And uh, and when you make your arrest, you're, you're quite chuffed because it's the first time you've made one since being in the in the collator office. And uh, but you, Ron makes the arrest via the phone, and you you call up Andrew Paul, who takes the call and says, "Hello, Dave, it's Ron. Ron who? Ron Smollett." I've arrested a man. Yeah. I'm in the telephone box. And he says, um, it might have been a while since you did this, Ron, but nowadays we use a thing called a radio to call for assistance. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave you lots of nice moments and you, you, you get called Robo Ron in that episode. And uh, you, you tell Andrew Paul, it was a, I was a damn good copper on the beat. Well, I'm sure you were, Ron, but I'm probably too young to remember, you know. Yeah. But I think you see, I think that was genuine. I think that was a genuine attitude of a lot of the young coppers towards the RBOs. Mm. You know, because as I said earlier, they were sort of maybe coming towards the end of their thirty, or they were kind of you know had a certain amount of experience. So I think that I think that was a fairly accurate reflection of the way it, uh, they were uh, looked at. You know. Yeah, and there's lots of lovely little touches you do, which I, I'm sure can't have been scripted. I, I see this as, you know, I mean, two episodes later, there's one called Discretion, and 
it's a li- tiny little moment, but you, you ring the doorbell and it's an old fashioned doorbell and you have a little smile to yourself at the sound the doorbell makes. Yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah. such a simple thing, but you just fill the screen while the writer and director credits are coming on the screen. It's a lovely, subtle little thing. You've got an itch that has to be scratched in, in this episode and uh, you've got a great double take. Uh, it's better than a double. It's a single take, but it feels like a double take. Uh, you, you chase a su- suspect who goes into a flat and it's got a keypad. And so you call the caretaker and say, police, open up, please. To which they say, oh, yeah, I haven't heard that one for a couple of weeks. I can't let anyone in here. There's a lot of crime around here, you know, and you do this great <laughs> sort of double take. <laughs> Once they start utilising you, you get a lovely two-parter with your community liaison office. And, and I find this That's very, right. very moving. Ron put so much into it, the little touches of the goldfish. and I know, he really cares, doesn't he? He really yeah. cares about that. Yeah, and you do this amazing stunt yourself when the office gets set on fire and you're, you're fighting. Well, it wasn't a, wasn't a, wasn't a stunt, really. Oh, oh, what, you mean the, the through the window? Well, yeah, and well, fire, just being in a room with real fire and a fire. I mean, there's a lot of fire in there. I'd call that a stunt. I'm I know, not... but that's the beauty of um, of uh, television is that the the actual flames were about six foot away from me, but they look like they're about a foot, don't they? Yeah. They look like, but actually they were right on the other side of the room, and the camera was filming through them. But it looked very real. I agree. Yeah. But uh, no, yeah, yeah. Well. I, I wouldn't call it a stunt, really, Oliver. <laughs> oh, it's a great action moment, all the same, and and it's it's it it brought a little tear in my eye when I see that when like you know because then they again they they didn't often at this point do two parters, so it's quite a nice tribute to you that they gave you a two parter. That was still very yeah. rare at this time in the bill, and they, they have a bit of fun at your expense. You know, Tony Scano has a line where he says, "I think the fire brigade ought to look at your face; it's still a light." You know, the, the, <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's the the copper humour where they're they're not like soft soaping Ron; they're just trying to no, keep no. him upbeat and. Um, yeah, you get called by a, a lad they arrest, that bold geezer, 007, which I like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now someone brings in a rather large bottle of whiskey uh, and you're like, no, 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 oh, no yes. not here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Happy days being reminded of this, I, I hope. So yeah, you... of course, of course. It was a good time, it was a good time. And he was a bit of a ladies' man, Ron, wasn't he? You know, he... he... Well, he... Uh... Yes, well, yes, in a in a sort of a a sort of a retro sort of way, yeah. I think. <laughs> so, what happened in, in nineteen ninety three? You've done three years, and and Ron just kind of disappears without an exit, which is which you're not alone in that year. They did it to a lot of the cast. Yes, they did. Yes, yes. I mean, basically, what happened, of course, was that the RBO initiative at the Met kind of fizzled out. And the guys I went out with, Chalky and Phil, originally, uh, you know, when they when they said we don't want to see you running, they kind of meant it, you know. The, so there was not a lot of drama. And if if the kind of RBOs are, are kind of going into the background, and also their actual role as police officers is not dramatic in terms of television programs, then it becomes harder and harder to write for them. And so I think that's what happened with Ron. They kind of ran out of storylines for him. Hmm. 
It's, yeah, it's a shame. Uh, and you deserved an exit storyline. Oh. Yeah, it would have been nice to have died, wouldn't it? Yeah. Something like that. Or promotion up to Chief Constable. Absolutely. PC. <laughs> <laughs> I could have been commissioner. Yeah. From PC to commissioner in one easy step. Yeah. Would you have liked to have continued? Or, or was three years a good stint? Or Three years was a very good stint. If they'd offered, I would have continued, yes. Because it was such a high-profile program. It, I mean, this is only my personal opinion, but it did start to go down towards the end of the 90s, you know. I mean, it started, in my opinion, to kind of become too soapy in a way. But it, at the time I was in it, I thought it was incredibly, incredibly high-quality drama. Oh, yeah. I mean, these are the golden years of a bill, but the first 10 yeah. years are just solid. It's gold dust. Yeah. But unlike, you know, some actors, you know, they've done the bill a long time and they struggled for work. It doesn't seem like you did struggle for work. You you continued to have a versatile career. Did the bill help your career in continuing to get work? or It, it didn't hinder and it didn't help particularly. I think because there had been a body of work prior mm. to uh, the bill that people knew what I was capable of and who I was. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There were yeah. people who, who had cast me and worked with me before the bill who still work with me after the bill, you know. Mm. You know I'm talking about directors, I'm talking about casting directors, you know, yeah, producers, yeah. people who were in the position to offer work and and, and that was fine. Yeah, no, it didn't really affect. I mean, the strangest thing was, I, I think the first job I had after the bill was playing a police sergeant. You know, kind of on the bill, <laughs> my uniform had always kind of been like there. And it was fitted. You know, you go for a fitting and you have a proper uniform that fits you snugly. Anyway, I turned up, I think it was in Richmond in North Yorkshire. I forget what it was, what the program was now. And I was playing a police sergeant. Oh, it was... um a program about a younger guy, a younger police officer that turned up and this uniform had been sent over by the costume department and it was about eight sizes too big for me. So I ended up doing the scene with this jacket held in at the back with uh, bulldog clips <laughs> down my back so that it wouldn't, I wouldn't look like I was, a, I'd shrunk within my uniform. So that was a bit of a come down after having sort of had a, a wonderful uniform that fitted perfectly to being held together by bulldog clips. <laughs> you were still adding some pretty prolific roles onto your CV not not long before you decided to retire. So what, what fueled the decision to retire when you were still getting pretty meaty roles? Or at least from someone looking at your CV, it looks like that. I'm guessing there were times of breaks between jobs and you know the auditions you oh yeah well there, there is for any actor there is for any actor yeah. um i don't know I, I, it was a, a, a sort of um i suppose a, a a coming together of various things the industry has changed i mean when i was a young actor you would go to the bbc at that lovely circular building in in white city and there was a whole floor dedicated to drama and there was a whole floor dedicated to light entertainment, which included sitcoms, right? Mm. And you would go for an interview 
with Sid Lotterby for open all hours. And you'd come out of the interview and Sid would say, well, I'll be in touch. I think, I think you'd be, uh, yeah, I think you're a fit. So, so yeah, be fine. Uh, and you just walk around the corridor and you pop your head in through Ray Butt, who was the director producer on Only Fools. And you go, how are you doing, Ray? Everything all right? And he'd go, Nick, Nick, Nick. Oh, yeah, great. No, I think I might have something for you. And that's how it was. And same on the drama floor. You know, you'd have your finiture interview and you'd be highly professional. And you just wander along and you'd see someone's name you knew. And you'd knock on the door and you'd open it and you'd go, how's it going? And they'd go, oh, hello. Yeah, so I was thinking of you the other day. That sort of thing. Now, that doesn't happen anymore. As I say, it's all done. You you put your audition on tape and it goes off to the casting director. And, you know, it, it saves a lot of time and money. Mm. I understand that. But it's not the industry that I, I entered 45 years ago. No. So I thought probably rather than sitting in the corner and becoming a grumpy old man, it was time to hang up the old grease paint and, and move on to other things, really. Now, you started acting off the advice of your mum. So did she get to see you break into television? And Oh, yes, she did. No, she kept a scrapbook. Oh. She, God love her, she kept a scrapbook. Yeah, no, I. Uh, she got to see... Uh, she died in 94, so she got to see quite a lot. She got to see the bill and all of that stuff, yes. Fantastic. Yeah. Make me envious about retirement because it's going to be a long time until I get to enjoy <laughs> retirement. So talk, talk to me about retired life. Oh, well, I mean, it's a, I mean, as they tell you in uh, all the papers, it's a, it's an endless stream of holidays and huge <laughs> amounts of money and, you know, free bus passes and all of that. No, it's great. I mean, you've got time. I mean, I'm learning Italian and um, I, I volunteer for things. I, I, for a couple of years, I was uh, a volunteer with the Samaritans, and uh, and now I volunteer. I, I read to stroke patients up at the local hospital here in Bristol. Oh. So yeah, there are you know there are lots of things you can do that kind of like giving back a bit. I do student films. That film that you mentioned the other day in your email was a student film uh, made by some students at the uh, University of Bristol uh, Film and Television Department. So I kind of like sort of giving back to the younger generation, if you like. And I just did one la- another one last week. Oh. I mean, not, un- un- unpaid, uh, but, you know, it's... And you can give something. Yeah. You know, you can, you can introduce them to the idea of working with professional actors who demand certain standards from the directors and from their film crews. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Absolutely. Like, I mean, for, for example, turning up on time. Mm. You know, mm. because that is the worst crime for an actor is to turn up late. You turn up late, everybody else is kept waiting around. Ergo, if it's the same with any member of any crew. So, like, you know, students have to learn that you turn up on time and that's it. You talked about, I mean, giving back. We, we ask, because you've kindly given your time very generously for free, uh, we ask listeners of this podcast to donate uh, to a, a charity of the interview's choice. So... I would like to nominate the charity I work for, Reading to Stroke Patients, which is called Interact Stroke Support. And we get, it's all around England and Wales. We go into hospitals and read and chat to stroke patients because it helps stimulate the brain and helps get them back to, to hopefully normality again.
I'll um, I'll pop a link at the end of the podcast so people can find out. More. That would be lovely. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you. No, well, thank you so much for doing this. I mean, I, it's it's one of those joys of doing this when you when a when you can track someone down and that they're happy to talk. But when you know, I, I've been sat here like a Cheshire cat for the last hour. You know, you've been telling me some <laughs> wonderful stories and. And I hope it's nice for you to know that your work is still being appreciated and enjoyed by people. I mean, when I announce that you've done this, there will literally be people all over the world absolutely delighted to hear your memories. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I hope it oh, that, pleases that's you. That's so kind of you. Thank you. It does very much. It's it's lovely. Thank you. And, uh, and my head is my head is getting bigger by the second. <laughs> As a sign off, what is your message to fans of the Bill, fans of Ron Smollett, who twenty five years on are are still enjoying walking the beat with Ron and and with you and your work? As Ron probably would have said, if at first you don't succeed, try another way. Wonderful. Nick Stringer, what a legend. Thank you so much, sir. Really grateful. Thank you, Oliver. My huge thanks to the legendary Nick Stringer for sharing his memories. What a career. Such a lovely man. I'm delighted he is sharing his time now with film students and helping them learn the ropes. Lucky them for having an actor of his calibre to make some magic with. My huge thanks also to the legendary Carol Drinkwater, who very kindly put me in touch with Nick. Carol is an award-winning actress and best-selling author. If you're stuck for Christmas ideas this year, visit caroldrinkwater.com. You can buy one of her superb novels for a loved one. My mum has a growing drinkwater collection and quite right too. You might be familiar with Nick's nominated charity. It is also Carolyn Pickles' nominated charity, Interact, who helps stroke victims in their recovery. You can find out more and make a donation at interactstrokesupport.org. Next time, we're tackling a CID staple of the 1990s, the legend that brought DC Alan Woods to life, the mighty Tom Kotcher. Next time on the Build Podcast. I'll be absolutely honest with you, Oliver. I didn't know what a podcast was, and I, 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 you know, I really thought it was some sort of splint thing. So, <laughs> you put on after you've had a, an injury that you shouldn't have been doing, you know.